0: Thank you, Steve. Let's open to Matthew's Gospel, chapter five. Matthew, chapter five. And I'm going to read verses one through 12. Thank you for the privilege of being here. I'm thankful to our gracious host, Pastor Steve, for how kind he's been I'm very grateful my dear wife, Janie, is here, and the music leader at Emanuel Church in Nashville, Ben Reynolds, with his dear wife, Robin. So please be sure to welcome them so kindly as you have welcomed me. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. God is doing a great work of revival in our time. You are a part of it here. That's why we're having this Gospel Coalition Conference. We are a part of it there, and we have gathered because we want to see in our time what only God can do, and that means we turn to the grace of God. What is the grace of God? Well, we all know, but here's an illustration. Etymologies don't establish meanings, but etymologies can illustrate meanings, so here's one the old testament word for grace is chen the adverbial suffix in that language is am so you take that suffix am like ly in english put it onto that word and you get chenam it means for no reason so you take the noun grace turn it into an adverb and it means For no reason. For example, in 1 Samuel, when Jonathan reproaches his father Saul because Saul has mistreated David for no reason. There was no warrant for this, there was no provocation. For reasons of his own, Saul hated David. God loves us for no reason, for no reason in us. God has reasons within himself why he loves us, but we have not prompted him to love us. The Bible never says God is wrath, but the Bible does say God is love. He just is. We have to provoke him to wrath. We do not have to provoke him to love. We do not have to draw out love from him by what we do. Because God loves us for no reason as far as we're concerned. Reasons in us. That's grace. God has his own reasons. We don't understand this amazing person whom we call God he has a different way of thinking, a different way of reasoning that's unfamiliar to us. We have to take this by faith that there is at the heart of the universe a love too great to be limited to what we deserve. And so we receive by faith the hinam of God, the for no reasonness of God in his For example, don't turn to it, but First John says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God does not love us because we loved Him first. God loves us because God is love. It's just who He is. He'll never stop being like that he refuses to ungod himself he will be who he is he will be true to himself for his own glory and so we receive with the empty hands of faith the grace of god and we want to we're here because we want to understand how do we actually live that way I mean, if we were going to be so bold as to believe what the Bible says, where would we go? What would change? If we were to believe in the grace of God, what dominoes would start falling over? A book I love very much is by Richard Lovelace, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Here's what he says, pages 101 and 102. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. In their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. He means they rely psychologically in the way they think. We rely on our obedience for our acceptance, our okayness. Few Christians know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform, you are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the completely external righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. So, in other words, you're okay, guys, you're standing at the bathroom mirror shaving. In the morning, you're starting your day. What do you say to that guy sta- staring back at you in the mirror? What you say is, Hey you, <laughs> you're accepted for Jesus' sake. Here's how you need to start your day. I'm accepted. Now, my, my, I, I don't wake up thinking that. My defaults do not line up with this wonderful assurance of completeness in Christ, starting the day with completeness. Believing in the grace of God means we dare to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, Hey, friend, you're accepted. You start your day with acceptance for Jesus' sake. That's how God thinks, that's grace. And and Loveless continues. This is very significant. If you care about revival, you want to know this next sentence in Loveless. In order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation of grace. This means that they must be conducted into the light of a full conscious awareness of God's holiness, the depth of their sin and the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ for their acceptance with God, not just at the outset of their Christian lives, but in every succeeding day. When, when, we, when you came to Christ, you moved all your chips over onto the grace square. You staked everything on the grace of God in Christ. You were, you started, okay, i have gonna bank. I've, What else is going to erase my past? And that's how we live every day. Re-enjoying the grace of God in Christ in in every day. Now, as I've thought this through and been really forced to take this deeper in my own life to my own satisfaction... What I began to notice is that that wonderful doctrine of God's grace that Scotty preached this afternoon so clearly and magnificently from Zephaniah chapter 3, that doctrine creates a certain culture in our churches and in our homes. And it's right here. When I began to think about that, that it it finally came to me, and it was so simple. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. I began to see it everywhere in the New Testament. It's right here, for example. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so meaning for no reason, just because God is love. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another for no reason in terms of performance. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace your church probably has a website with a subpage that has your doctrinal statement on it. I'm guessing that doctrinal statement is thoroughly pervaded with wonderful gospel truth. That doctrine, as it is apprehended and, it, and the Lord presses it into our hearts more and more deeply, creates a gospel culture in our churches. Because God doesn't want this grace just for me only, just for you only. He wants it for everybody spreading out through our churches. People need to come into our churches to experience the grace of God before they can even understand the grace of God, much less believe it and accept it. What we, we have gathered here, because we want our churches to be of such a gracious quality that when people come in, they feel like Jesus has come to town. Amen. Amen. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. I begin to see this all over the New Testament. For example, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through ten: dead in trespasses and sin, sins, stone dead to God, or totally alive to the creation. But our hearts are, our God connection has totally shut down. Then God the Holy Spirit in mercy comes to us and resurrects our God awareness and we sense his glory. And Paul explains in Ephesians 2 1 through 10 by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves so that nobody can boast the doctrine of regeneration creates a culture of humility Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 16 which John Stott calls one of the most tense and dramatic moments in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul confronts publicly openly in front of everybody the Apostle Peter because of legalism friends Legalism is not just a Mormon problem. It's a Christian problem. In the first century, it was an apostolic problem. You think you and I are going to be free of it easily? Paul confronts Peter and explains to him, Peter, think through the doctrine of justification. You and I share something in common. We both believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all our works, right? Yes. Yes. You have just violated the doctrine you believe and teach by separating from the Gentiles at table fellowship. The doctrine of justification creates a culture of inclusion. If all it takes to be kosher and clean among the people of God is Jesus received with the empty hands of faith, then anybody who has Jesus is in. Thinking back again to Ephesians chapter 2, later in the chapter, verses 14 through 16, the doctrine of reconciliation creates a culture of peace. Um, Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23, the doctrine of sanctification creates a culture of life and vibrancy. Um, uh, Romans uh, chapter 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and so forth. The doctrine of glorification creates a culture of hope. In a hand-wringing world. Um, And 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, the doctrine of God, this is the message we heard from him: that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What is more foundational than who God is? And John the Apostle explains the doctrine of God creates a culture of honesty. Verses 5 through 10. So if, but, but if we see a church that professes the gospel of God's grace doctrinally, but the, the actual culture of the church is haughty, exclusivistic, contentious, exhausted, past-oriented, and in denial, that church doesn't believe the gospel. No matter what is on that subpage of their website. Because, the culture we share together as congregations, God's good and holy and wise will is that the gospel would be embodied in our community. I'm talking about something that's, doctrine is fairly cut and dried. It's very significant. I am not downplaying the importance of sound doctrine. I'm emphasizing it and extending the significance of it. When the gospel doctrine flows into and flavors the gospel culture, the relationships of the church, the tone, the vibe, the feel, the experience. Where I serve in Nashville, Ben, frankly, I, I think of it as kind of a it's a crazy experiment, what we're doing. We're, we're, if, and if, it, if it fail, I'd rather fail in the power of the Holy Spirit than succeed in the flesh. I, th- I feel like the meaning of my whole existence is on the line. What we're attempting in this crazy experience is to create a church by God's grace in all of our sin and weakness and imperfection, to create a church by God's grace and for His glory alone, where literally no one has anything to fear. No broken sinner has anything to fear. They don't have to worry. What's being said about me behind my back? What might happen to me here? Am I safe here? do I need to be worried and anxious when I walk into this social environment? We want to create an environment. I don't know how well we're doing. Uh, I I, I have this little speech at the beginning of every service because people walk into church, they have been beaten up all week. They live in a social environment where they never measure up. We, uh, who was it? uh, uh, who, who was the Swiss psychiatrist, Scotty, who wrote that wonderful book, Guilt and Grace? Tournier, Paul Tournier. He has this brilliant, you've got to read that book, brilliant book. He says in the early chapters, you know, we, we, we are so soaked in an environment of criticism and merciless comparisons, it actually feels normal to us. That's the social environment we're in all the time. Watch the advertisements. They're telling you, you don't measure up. Buy this product and you look like this amazing human being in the commercial. We're made to feel small to get our money out of us. And in many other ways. That's what we're, we're just swimming in this ocean of criticism all week long. Then we walk into church. And I've got this little speech that I, 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 I sort of begin the service with most Sundays night. A couple weeks ago, I walked up to Ben. We had, the timer was like 30 seconds, and I, I felt kind of insecure. I felt, they're probably sick and tired of me saying this. So I walked up to Ben. He was there with his guitar. I said, Ben, should I make that speech? Yes, you must. <laughs> so, okay, okay. <laughs> to all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a Savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus. The mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies. The defender of the indefensible. The justifier of those who have no excuses left. And so on and so forth. Ben's playing his guitar and I get to say this because I just want people to know this is going to be different now. You just walked into grace. and We can relax. We can own up. We can be honest. We can face the living God through the blood of Christ. And let him speak to us. And actually, this whole this next hour together in this worship service, we're going to be reoxygenated. My goal is that when those people walk out of church at uh, eleven forty-five, they just float out of church. I want them to th- be thinking, without my having to tell them, as they're walking out. Oh, oh, I want to live for Christ this week. I feel alive again. Nobody else makes me feel like this. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture, a healthy church where Jesus reigns and he alone sets the ground rules and people can live again. Well, that's what the Beatitudes describe as I understand it. A gospel culture. It's what a gospel culture looks like. My goodness, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to be part of this? Nobody has anything to fear here. It's wonderful. So we need both doctrine and culture. Um, the culture is what the doctrine is for. So we need the doctrine of grace... Wholeheartedly believed, boldly preached, as Scotty did today. Without the doctrine, we have no reason for the culture, and the culture becomes unsustainable. But grace as doctrine only, grace on paper only, is not half right. Grace, in theory, only creates churches where Christians can beat each other up with a clear conscience because they're doing it for the glory of God, because the doctrine is right. But that's wrong. That culture destroys the doctrine in people's eyes. Richard Loveless again, again in Dynamics, he said, the world does not need more victorious Christians who drive their neighbors to distraction by their cheerful indulgence in undeserved carnality. <laughs> I love Richard Lovelace. Only he could say that. It's wonderful. So in a gospel culture, what's gospel doctrine about? God loving people who deserve damnation. A great host of people who deserve... Heaven, you're going to go through heaven with Jesus every day meeting the most amazing human beings, each one unique, unlike you in many ways. Every time you meet a new one, you're going to feel like you just made your new best friend forever. There will be a host, a multitude of fascinating human beings, and every single one of them will be for you. And will like you. (laughs) Heaven's a gospel culture. What we want is to experience that in our weakness and our need, our failure and our sin, experience it to some imperfect but real degree here in this world. Then our churches will have power. Francis Schaeffer wrote, one cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. A community which the world could see. But they had to, the world had to take the doctrine by faith. They shouldn't have to take the community by faith. They should see it. By the grace of God, therefore, a church must be known simultaneously simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. So a gospel-centered church holds two things together together Simultaneously. One, a bold message of grace, not our sacrifices, but His sacrifice for us, not our moral superiority, but only His moral prestige. The good news that our okayness is not in us at all, but exterior to us in Christ alone at the Father's right hand. Our justification is not even in this world, it's not even on this planet. It's at the Father's right hand. That means it is secure. Nothing in this world can change it. It's the good news of God's grace because of the out thereness of our righteousness, the someone elseness of our justification, the exteriority of our okayness. Our security with God, a, a gospel centered church sees Jesus with that kind of clarity and becomes happily addicted to hearing it over and over again every Sunday because it never gets old because I still keep sinning and I need to hear about my Savior so that bold message of grace along with that clear message number two, a gospel-centered church is also marked by a beautiful, humane culture of grace. That kind of church translates its theology into its sociology. It translates its message into relational feel. The good news of God's grace beautifies how we treat one another, how we look at one another. There's a difference. My wife knows the difference. There is a difference between looking at someone and looking in their eyes. And... The Bible never says love one another moderately. This world we live in is a very loving place. There's a lot of love in this world. Parents love their kids. Kids love their parents. People love their pets. There's a lot of love. Most of it is moderate. Down with moderate love. It is not divine. The Bible says love one another earnestly from the heart. Intensely. It, when it starts, especially between us men, when it starts feeling a little awkward, then we're getting somewhere. <laughs> we look each other in the eye, and it gets intense. So pastors, my brother pastors, when we go to, into church to care for the people on Sunday mornings, we want, them to, we want to love them intensely. then the message, you can just feel it. You're just walking into this cloud of glory because only God can do that. And how we treat one another reveals what we really believe about God as opposed to what we think we believe. It is possible to say our church is committed to the grace of God and sincerely mean that while that very church, without realizing it, has become a law-controlled social environment of merciless comparisons and coercive demands. We see in the doctrine, we see God above lowering his gun and we breathe a sigh of relief. But if we are trigger-happy toward one another, we don't get it yet. I find that a major, for me, this has become clearer as longer I've lived. A major part of pastoral ministry is not only preaching the doctrine of grace, but also managing an environment of grace. I'm not saying preaching, it's, preaching the doctrine of grace is not easy for me. I have to relearn it every, every week in my preparation. But managing an environment of grace is even harder because it's more intuitive. It requires more humility and self-awareness and constant touches with a thousand people and so forth. We all need God's help. It isn't easy to hold on to the doctrine. It's even harder to build a culture where the humaneness is so beautiful. Unbelievers, wouldn't it be wonderful for every church represented here to become in the eyes of its community a wonderful anomaly? You people don't make sense. Why aren't you angry? Why aren't you angry with each other? Why aren't you angry at us? Why are the races getting along in your church and the different age groups and the various cultural identities? You seem to like each other. You are... This, there's somebody called Emmanuel Church a, a for you church. That's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. I can't imagine anything more wonderful if that's for the glory of God. Wonderful anomalies. Difficult to explain. Demanding attention. Can't be ignored. Francis Schaeffer also wrote, if the church is what it should be, young people will be there, but they will not just be there. Scotty, this takes takes us back to our college days. Young people will not just be there. They will be there with the blowing of horns and the clashing of high-sounding cymbals, and they will come dancing with flowers in their hair. (laughs) And so will the old people. And so our churches need to reevaluate what really matters. Here's a place to begin. Two simple questions do our churches consider the truth of biblical doctrine essential? Secondly, do our churches consider the beauty of human relationships equally essential? Schaefer spoke of orthodoxy of doctrine. He spoke of orthodoxy of community. That's not optional. That has authority. The easy thing is just to go one way or the other. I mean, I'm wired one way. You might be wired another. Some of us naturally resonate with truth and standards and definitions and boundaries and so forth. Others of us naturally resonate with relationships and feel and vibe and all those sort of ooey-gooey things. That's me. And whole churches can go one way or the other. Left to ourselves, we'll get it partly wrong, but not feel wrong, because all we look for is what's partly right and we need a full paradigm of grace in doctrine and grace in culture because truth without grace is harsh and ugly and grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly and the living christ is both truthful and gracious therefore i cannot represent jesus and we cannot represent jesus within the limitations of our own personalities and backgrounds and denominational styles It literally requires me and us. It requires of you that we lean on the Lord moment by moment. Lord, I'm in this conversation with this human being right now. I'm feeling some pressure. I'm feeling some anxiety. I don't know what to say. So rather than veer off into my default, which is small and petty, I'm trusting you right now to give me grace and wisdom to understand how to respond to this person as you would have me. Moment by moment. Then we find ourselves, by the miraculous power of God, transcending ourselves and looking imperfectly but legitimately a little bit like Jesus. And He enlarges us. Well, the Beatitudes describe that kind of church, the gospel culture. Jesus began it in chapter 4, verse 17 when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's sort of like select chapter 4, verse 17, double click, and up comes the Sermon on the Mount. That's what repentance looks like, the coming of the kingdom of Jesus. So he was saying, get ready for something new. Get ready for some adjustments. This is going to be a change, wonderful kind of change only God can give. So here our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, is rolling out his new kingdom. And here in the Beatitudes, the beginning, he's entering into the surprises of the kingdom of heaven in these counterintuitive statements. He's congratulating everyone who shows the marks or the signs or the indicators, the evidences of his presence and his rule. The Beatitudes do not describe how we earn the favor of God they describe the difference that free grace makes in the undeserving ones who receive it. So where does Jesus the king see his kingdom in the world today? I don't want to know what I think of myself. I don't count. I want to know what he thinks. And Jesus the king announces, he told us in the Beatitudes, he had to tell us, we never would have guessed, The striking thing about the Beatitudes to me is he doesn't make doctrine the issue. Here's the first thing he says about his new kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he starts out with the Beatitudes. I might have thought, repent for the kingdom of heaven, first thing he's going to talk about is, here's what your doctrinal statement should be. But he doesn't. He talks instead about a gospel culture. He doesn't say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then restate the Ten Commandments. When Jesus publicly and formally defines his royal presence, he talks about what grace looks like in a community. That's his first proof of authenticity. And you know the impact that this sermon had. It says in chapter 7, verse 28, the people were surprised. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So, his sermon was not like the preaching that they had ever heard before. And if we today can read the Beatitudes and not be surprised and make some mental adjustments and feel a little bit of sort of uh, whiplash in how we read this, then we really haven't heard what he's saying. Jesus welcomes into his kingdom only the people who have sinned so badly, they've sinned their righteousness away permanently, they have lost their innocence now they're coming back to him with nothing but need they don't admire themselves they mourn over themselves but Jesus is happy over them and he wants them to know how happy he is so the Beatitudes are not just another passage in the Bible the Beatitudes summarize what real Christianity looks like in actual human beings and in communities the Beatitudes are meant to be definitive. That's why they're here at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. After calling us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and everything God promised in the Old Testament is about to come crashing into this exhausted world, now the Lord tells us what that mentality of repentance actually looks like. And that's where the future of the world is coming down. Wherever the penitent get together. They start experiencing ahead of time something of the eschaton. The kingdom of Jesus is for sinners in repentance and it's for them only. It's for people who have failed so badly they have no bargaining chips left and they refuse to fake it. They are bringing their need to God. He is giving them Jesus and he creates with those unlikely people something new in this world called a gospel culture where people can experience grace in relationships and not just grace in theory. So... Why don't we look at this first beatitude, which, because all the others flow out of verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a couple of questions. One, what what does he mean by blessed? Two, who are the poor in spirit? And three, how might our churches experience the kingdom of heaven? So one, what did Jesus mean by blessed? The word beatitude, as of course you know, it has nothing to do with the English word attitude. It comes from the Latin word beatus, which means something like fortunate or how well off. So the word "blessedness," blessed is, is saying how fortunate you are, um, lucky, l- you lucky guys, The opposite of the word blessed is the word woe. We know that from Luke's gospel, chapter 6, where blessed and woe stand in contrast to each other. The word woe means sorrow and regret. When Jesus says woe to people, he's saying, you're doing so well that you don't need me? What a tragedy. How I wanted to bless you. That's a woe. When Jesus says to the poor in spirit, blessed are you, he's saying, you guys, are, are, you, are you actually saying to me, the poor in spirit, you're, you're, you're saying to me you have nothing to be proud of anymore. You've completely discredited yourselves. Congratulations. This is really going to go well. <laughs> so the word blessed is a biblical high five. It's an attaboy. It's a pat on the back. The Beatitudes, obviously, therefore, are not laws. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he gave us laws. When Jesus introduced the Sermon on the Mount, he gave us encouragements. For sinners under the law commands amount to wishful thinking. For sinners under grace, encouragement put wind in our sails. The word blessed declares authoritative encouragement from above. Jesus said, there's joy in heaven, even over one sinner who repents. Heaven is a constant explosion of nuclear-powered happiness of a broken sinner's coming home. The word blessed is a word from above. It's a word from the throne. It is Jesus saying, I am rejoicing over you. I'm so pleased with you. I'm really excited about your future. Now, the the very fact that these Beatitudes are counterintuitive is because there's a larger context. This whole world doesn't work like this, the world we live in. And uh, the world has its own sense of what to celebrate and what to congratulate and so forth. So what I'd like to do is just briefly take each of the Beatitudes in order and flip it into its photographic negative. So we could say, instead of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and so forth, congratulations to the entitled, for they get their way. Congratulations to the carefree, for they are comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they win. Congratulations to the self-righteous, for they are smug. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they are feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Congratulations to the winners, for they get their way. And that's our world, isn't it? And we must admit with embarrassment and sorrow, sometimes that's also our churches. But can we think of one human being, even one in all the length of human history, who pushed his or her way forward with those dark unbeatitudes and then came to the end a fulfilled wise, radiant human being with a life such as you and I would want for ourselves? Can we even name one? That's the kind of world Jesus came to die for, but that is not the kind of world Jesus came to create. And Jesus takes people like that, people like us, and turns them into Beatitudes people, By the power of his grace. The Beatitudes do explain where we need to go for our churches to have this kind of kingdom of heaven on earth experience and flavor and aura. That's what the word blessed means. It's our Lord's smile. There's nothing greater. You and I both know we've all lived long enough and sinned enough and been disappointed enough to know there's just nothing in all of life like the smile of Jesus, especially when we know we don't deserve it. Secondly, who are the poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Fascinating, poor in spirit. When he says poor, he doesn't mean people who have only a little. He means people who have nothing. They are the poor. Poor in spirit. I I don't know what else to think except the Lord is implying that all the people who think they've earned his attention are excluded and going to hell. And as evidence of that, people who think they've earned his attention and they have that coming to them tend to create hell in this world wherever they go. And Jesus is telling all the people who think they're important that they don't count. He's telling all the people who think they're smart that they flunk. He's telling all the sinners and whores and porn addicts and hypocrites and failures and idiots and weaklings who turn to him that the future of the world is theirs. The Pharisees looked at those very people and said, you're the ones bringing society down. Jesus looked at those same people as they turned to him and said, you're the ones I'm going to build my kingdom with. So to be poor in spirit, what does that mean? It doesn't mean a dull personality. I mean, we've all seen, we've seen friends born again and like, Suddenly they sparkle. You know, they got that, the Lord sprinkles his pixie dust on them, and they just light up. And yet they're poor in spirit. Fascinating human beings, but poor in spirit. Jesus is saying this wonderful secret that we need the Lord to tell us so many times that wealth begins with poverty, life begins with death, and a better future begins with facing the past. (laughs) All the things we don't believe. When he talks about the poor, he means sinners who have squandered their chance at life. But in desperation, they're turning to him. The poor in spirit look at the cross. They see the Son of God dying for their bungled lives, the Prince of Heaven, the Worthy One, laying down his life for the likes of them, And they know they can't put in a claim with God. The old spirit of demandingness dies. And when the Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, the poor in spirit feel that impoverishment. Jesus is saying, you're telling me God owes you nothing? Wonderful. He's going to give you everything. So, that's not how we would launch a new kingdom. That, that's not how we would start a new project. Um, when we want to start something, we recruit the cool people <laughs> and the heavy hitters and you know, the winners and the people who are smart and funny and impressive and so on. Jesus looks for the losers who are down so low they need everything. Who would start a think tank with dropouts? Who would start a business with gamblers? Who would start a religion with sinners? Jesus. Because he gives everything and he gets the glory. It's obvious with those people, Jesus has come to town. We get the mercy. He gets the glory. Now, it's very poignant and touching and a little bit scary that later in the New Testament, Jesus said to his church at Laodicea, you say, it's as if he read their minds. And he he said, guys, are you listening to yours? Let me repeat back to you the way you think and the way you're taught. Let me tell you what I'm hearing you say. He said to the church at Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If I were walking down the streets of the sidewalk of Nashville somewhere and I saw 50 feet away some guy who was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked walking my way I might have the poise, I might not, I might have the poise to walk up to him and say, Sir, may I help you? And he's probably got a bloody nose because he bumped into a telephone pole and kind of banged up. and, And he says to me, no thank you, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. I would say, he's crazy. And I'd be right. Jesus said to this church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing it. You don't realize. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. All they could think about, all they could talk about was their strengths and their accomplishments and their successes. What they needed was honesty about their weaknesses because it's weakness Jesus is drawn to. It's all he's drawn to. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And finally, just very briefly, how might our churches experience the kingdom of heaven? Oh, my. Wouldn't it be great if we just had the time and the energy just to pass the mic around tonight and for us to swap stories about how we've experienced heaven in our churches through the years? Maybe some Sunday night service. And it just started out in the usual way. But the Lord came down. And there came into that church a spirit of reverence. There came into that service a spirit of honesty. And there was a breaking in that service. And people came together. There were, there were tears. People were on their knees. So they were getting right with God. They were getting right with one another. And it was glorious. So how can our. Our church has experienced the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Lord said in chapter 4, verse 17, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, at the ultimate level of causation, there are two levels of causation in all things in God's universe. The ultimate level is God himself. That's mystery. We just trust him. We just trust him. We believe and receive his promises and just trust him. But at a lower level of Profundity at our level, our actual level of human responsibility that the Lord Himself has given to us. He said to us what he wants us to do: repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. During the first Great Awakening, George Whitfield preached a sermon in which he said, he sort of dug out the archaeology of repentance. He came up with four levels of repentance. I love George Whitfield. <laughs> if Pastor if you have not read, by the way, um, Arnold Dalamore's two-volume biography of George Whitfield, Sell Your Shirt, go Banner of Truth Trust, Arnold Dalamore, Canadian scholar, and he wrote the definitive biography of, John, of uh, I love Jonathan Edwards too, George Whitfield. It will set you on fire. Anyway, George Whitfield, he said, yes, repent of your sins. You need to repent of your sins but you also need to repent of your righteousness. And until you repent of your righteousness, you cannot have peace with God. Here's here's exactly what he said, George Whitfield, in the First Great Awakening. You must be troubled for the sins of your best duties and performances. You must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you ever put up. Our best duties are so many splendid sins. Self-righteousness is the last idol taken out of our hearts the biggest barrier between our churches and the, the living christ i know you'll you'll interpret this charitably the biggest barrier between our churches and the living christ might be our christianity Ed Stetzer, the Southern Baptist scholar who lives in Nashville with us, said this. I heard him say this. This is talking about the American Bible Belt. Bible Belt people need to be saved from their salvation and come to Jesus. Why? Because sin lurks in our goodness and Jesus cannot bless sin no matter how well polished it is. But the difference is this, we feel the pain of our bad sins, but our good sins feel good, yet they're more poisonous. A man who commits adultery might feel bad about it, but a man who looks down on an adulterer probably feels good about that. Our good sins don't warn us. They don't shock us. They lie to us. They flatter us. Yes, we're all nice people here tonight, but the deeper truth is we're all nice, evil people. I am, and so are you. And that superficial glaze of okayness on the outside with all of this unresolved tension and anger and so forth within, that actually, religion exists To preserve that superficial glaze of okayness. It's what religion is for. To enable uh, denial. And the gospel comes in our hearts. Crack open under the grace of God. And healing pours in. We start talking about the things that really trouble us in our hearts. We start confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. We get healed. (laughs) Or we get unburdened. It is so freeing to be poor in spirit. Those are the people Jesus identifies with. They're just as sinful as everybody else, in some ways worse. But they experience the kingdom of heaven because they have Jesus, and all they have is Jesus. And their churches. Man alive, it just feels like heaven on earth. Jesus is there. I'll just close with this. Um, At Emmanuel in in Nashville, I I asked our, our dear people to paint the outside of our doors red. In another building we used to use, it was the actual exterior doors into the sanctuary, but now just the doors into the interior sanctuary, but they're red. And I explain because that's an old Anglican tradition that the doors of the church should be read. Why? Because we enter the church through the blood of Christ. It's very meaningful. Sometimes at the beginning of our service, I point this out, I love to make this, this other little speech. We're coming out of one social environment into another social environment. We're coming out of a world of Never measuring up. Never being good enough. Never really being included. Never really sure if you belong. We're coming out of that environment into through the finished work of Christ on the cross into a totally different kind of community where we walk into completeness, We walk into acceptance. We walk into belonging because of Jesus and Him alone. And everybody shares it together. And all together we exhale and breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, I think I'm going to live again. (laughs) Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. Well, let's pray.